Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Amen. 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 Well, church, you may grab your seats, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. So if you can go ahead and make your way there. We'll be starting verse 21 here in just a minute. Matthew 5, verse 21 is going to be our jumping off point. And so we're continuing our series, New View. And so as we make all these new resolutions that really focus on the new you, that would be helpful and better and more foundational and more lasting to remind ourselves that we need a new view. And so we've worked through several things over the last couple weeks. And if you remember last week, which I know you do because you guys take notes and you meditated on we all week and figure out how you apply these things. I know you do. So you remember last week, sermon title was purpose. And the reason I don't question you, question you because uh, I don't want to get my feelings hurt when you don't remember, right? Purpose, meaning God created you on purpose for a purpose. And we looked at Psalm 139, 13 and 14. The psalmist says, for it is you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I've been remarkably and wondrously made. And so as we looked last week, it was really focused on us and how perfect God has created each and every one of us. Today, we're going to shift the focus, and if you're taking notes, which I know you all are, so I'm so thankful for that, you can title this sermon, People. People. So if you're tracking so far, we start off with week one, power, and then prayer, and then purpose, now people, so we'll wrap this series up next week with another P word. I'll let you guess what that may be. But today we're talking about people. And so as we look at God's creation of us and how he's made us on purpose, for purpose, he's also made them, other people, on purpose, for purpose. That's what leads us to Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew 5, it starts the Sermon on the Mount, is what it's been called. This is Jesus' teaching to disciples and followers and the crowd. And this teaching was directed at the imbalance of obedience regarding the instruction and function of God's Word. So you hear repeatedly in some this morning, you've heard it said, Jesus will say, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said regarding God's law, God's Word, but I tell you. That means something was missing. We've missed something that he's clarifying, which leads us to verse 21. Jesus says, you've heard it, that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, quoting Exodus 20. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. And what I want to ask is, why are we not to murder? And you may think, that's a silly question. Why would you ask that? Well, here's why I ask it. I came across an article this week from Psychology Today regarding humanity's origination. I'm just going to read it to you. Not the whole thing, just a portion. Don't get nervous says, the universe was cold, mechanistic, and devoid of any goals and purposes. The Big Bang produced a hodgepodge of wildly moving particles from which atoms were formed, all pulled and pushed along by four fundamental forces of nature. Gravity, electromagnetism, the weak force, the strong force. 
The atoms had no intentions. They were not trying to do something. The atoms, stars, and galaxies were just playing out the cosmic dance of nature governed by blind natural forces. It goes on to say, from the modern scientific worldview, there is no externally imposed purpose for human life, or any other life for that matter. At one level of description, our movements and whatever happens in our brains are governed by the physical laws as much as anything else happening in the universe. It goes on to cite Thomas Huxley, as he observed in 1874, says, although we might feel our actions are volitional and emanating from our own will, such volitions do not enter into the chain of causation, as doing that would break the laws of physics. So, if you're not tracking, let me summarize. People are accidents with no purpose, operating under a false sense of free will, as we're just a tiny element of the larger cosmic dance that's randomly happening without direction. This is important because this is the dominant belief system in our society. Number one. And maybe more importantly, parents, this is what's being taught in the school systems. Now, I'm not saying that everybody should homeschool and rush all these Christian schools. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you are required and commanded to teach your children. We'll get back to that in a minute. That's your responsibility. But we have to ask the question, when we have this in mind, why are we not to murder when there's no purpose, there's no value in life? Then what does it matter? If everything's blind and random, well, God's word actually reveals something very specific about humans, people, that they're priceless. Being matchless, incomparable, unequaled, unparalleled, of unrivaled value. In God's sight, people are priceless. So let's do this. To help us understand this people are priceless point that we're trying to get at. Many of you know Pablo Picasso. I know, not maybe personally, but you know of him, right? Pablo Picasso, maybe one of the greatest artists in the 20th century. So he has this painting that was sold in New York. Can you show that painting? Just about a year and a half ago. This painting was sold for $103 million. And I'm asking, why? I'm not an artist, so I don't really enjoy art, but I've seen some of my kids' art. My three-year-old can do better. I'm just saying. I don't want your emails, those who are in art. It's just me. But so why is this painting so valuable? To me, I, you couldn't pay me to put this on my wall. The value, the painting's worth, is not rooted in the quality of the painting necessarily. It's rooted in the painter, the artist. This is valuable because of who painted it. So when we go back to the pricelessness of people, it's the same concept. Genesis 1 verse 27 tells us that God created man in his own image. This is called the Imago Dei the image of God. He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. We are image bearers. And what we see in the Bible is that all people were created on purpose for a purpose, meaning there is no accidents with God. 
That's important. So if murdering is taking life, we have to ask the question, when and what is life? And let me be clear. The conversation about when life ends or begins is not political. It is 100% biblical. I'm just going to go through a few verses. I'm not going to explain them. I just want you to read them and hear them. Because it clarifies what life is. And we've already seen it a couple times last week and this morning. Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14. The psalmist says, For it is you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I've been remarkably and wondrously made. Isaiah 44, verse 2 says, This is the word of the Lord, your maker, the one who formed you in the womb. Job 33, verse 4, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Psalm 100, verse 3, Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us. We are His people. We are His. His people, His sheep of His pastor. Isaiah 64, verse 8, Yet, Lord, you are our Father. We are clay, you are our our potter. We are all work of your hands. And Jesus, when talking about the value of people in Matthew 10, verse 20, he says, Even the hairs of your head have been counted, and for some of us, that's easier than others. So as God's people, we're called to care for all people from conception. And let me do one more thing for us. Because this is where the argument revolves. When does life start? Let me just wreck that argument with one verse, one truth from God's word. Because we want to say, well, it starts at conception, or maybe it's week eight, maybe it's week, whatever you say. Let me go and wreck that whole argument. Because what God says to Jeremiah. God told Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1, verse 5, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. So let's start there. Maybe all people are created on purpose, for a purpose, by loving God. And it's really interesting. The ultrasound technology has really done an amazing job of giving us a window into God's creative process. Ultrasound. We have a, we've had several ultrasounds, as you may know. We have several kids and they're always just amazing to see these images. And so one image, we get to look at the creative process. So this is at 18 weeks old in the womb. I would have showed you other ones, but I have to explain, like, where's the arm and feet and all these different things. You get all weird. So we get to see in the womb God's creative process. So you have 18 weeks to 15 years old, Right? Praise God. This ministry called Project 139, their motto is opening a window to the womb. And they've seen and studies have shown that getting a peek at the person being woven together inside the womb actually had a dramatic impact in abortion determinations. And so their mission is to provide an ultrasound machine to pregnancy resource centers throughout the country. And why did I tell you that? Because of a small percentage of what we give to this church goes through this church to ministries like that. So the conversation of life, we have to be sensitive and know that this conversation can be stirring and triggering for a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. And what we need to know was what many people sadly know. 
that abortion produces a lifetime of a mental and emotional trauma for both the father and mother. So if you've had that hurt or known someone to have, I want to encourage you with what God's word says. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 talks about God's faithful love and his mercy is new every morning. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, my grace is sufficient for you, which leads to Hebrews 4, 16. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In other words, healing starts at the foot of the cross. Healing starts with Jesus. And so if you find yourself hurting for various reasons, your healing starts with Jesus alone. Because of what Jesus did for you, your past no longer defines you. Whatever your past looks like, it no longer defines you. Your identity is not what you've done, it's not what you've been, or it's not what you've been through. Your identity is not what people said to you or done to you. Now, I love this. As you look throughout Scripture, we see that God is in the demolition and construction business. He's not redoing, he's renewing. I mean, he tears down something and builds something completely new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Brand new. And in case that's not clear enough, he goes on to say, The old has passed away. And see, the new has come. There's hope and there's healing at the foot of the cross, and it starts with Jesus. So going back to why does God command people not to murder people? It's not because you're some kind of co cosmic, random accident. But you've been caringly created by God as a loving father, making all people priceless in his sight. So understand this, how people are priceless impacts how we treat all people from the womb to the workplace, on the way to the workplace, at Walmart, after your wedding, it impacts how we treat all people. When we start, when we see people are priceless, everyone. And so as we come to texts like this, we'll be tempted to be like, well, I'm doing pretty good then. Like, I, I haven't physically murdered anyone, so that's a win. Well, in other words, Jesus will continue and say, but wait, there's more. Jesus further explains that the value of people goes beyond just not physically murdering people. He says deeper than that. Jesus is going to connect how your heart and your mind moves both your hands and your mouth to be bring killing or healing, which leads us to verse 22. So he says, you've heard it said do not murder, but he says, but I tell you in verse 22, Everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. So let me just ask you this. You see the word angry there. Do you know what that means in Greek? I mean, it's written in Greek, so it's helpful to bring some awareness and deeper meaning to the word. You know what that means in Greek, angry? It means angry. I mean, we try to really get real cute with words sometimes. It means angry. I'm not going to massage it, try to make you feel better. So have you ever been angry? I'm raising my hand because I've been angry. 
Probably at some point this morning. No. So let me ask you why. Because this is important. Why do we get angry? And I actually have an answer. And it's not because I'm so wise and intelligent. It actually comes out of God's word. And if you've been around this church for any amount of time, you've heard this mentioned probably several times. I, invite, I encourage you to write it down. Why do we get angry? James 4 tells us by way of question and then tells us. Verse 1 and 2. He says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war inside of you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. Why, don't, why do we get mad? Because we don't get what we want. I've said it before, we're all functioning three-year-olds at some level. If we're honest, we get mad because we don't get what we want. So I'm looking at this verse, and I wonder how many of our relationships look like this. Fighting and waging war within your family members. How about your friends or neighbors? Within the church. How about your boyfriend and girlfriend? And if so, get out. Not out of the church. Get out of that relationship. If you're already fighting and waging war and you're not even married yet, husbands, do not amen that. Okay? Just get out. Marrieds, husbands and wives, stay in. Stop fighting with and start fighting for. But we see the gravity of Jesus' words. He's talking about anger, but then he talks about the words we use. The gravity of Jesus' words says you're weaponizing even your words are murderous. He talks about the insult of you fool, meaning good for nothing. That's what that means. Good for nothing. So, for example, let's just say you made a clay pot. And you worked hard with this clay pot. And I come along and said, that is terrible. That is good for nothing. That's a piece of garbage. Would you be insulted? Why? I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about your pot. Right? And it goes back to when I was a child, I tried to make my, my parents this little mug out of clay. Well, it turned into an ashtray by the time I was done, okay? My parents are smokers, so it worked out well. So why do we get been out of shape if somebody talks about our clay pot like that? It's because it's directed at you, right? Isaiah 64, 8, we just looked at it. Yet, Lord, you are our father. We are clay and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. So any accusation that we make against someone else, you're making an accusation against the creator himself. Do we start seeing the gravity of our words when you tear down someone? Who are you really tearing down? God's creative genius. Your words have weight. And this is James 3. It talks about your tongue, the, how we use our words. It says it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of of the tongue. Death and life, killing and healing 
You've heard it said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but your words will never hurt me. That's a lie. That's a lie and a coping mechanism to heal and protect ourselves from the hurt and wounds from words. Which brings us to James 1. 19 and 20 says, my brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone, okay, that's a lot of people. I think you all fall under that. So do I. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. But the negative of that is what we do. We are slow to listen, quick to speak, leads to quick anger, which accomplishes wreckage within our relationships. So our words have weight. Anger has consequences. But when we see this, we have to know there's two sides of every coin of God's commands. Here's what I mean. One side, we say a do not do. We see that. Do not do. But the other side, be looking for a do to do, right? I was going to say do do, but that would come off all wrong. That's why I didn't say it. You didn't hear it. So we see a do not murder people with your mind or your mouth, your heart or your hands. But then what are we to do? We're to love people by word and deed. I'm going to go through a long portion of the text, but I think it's crucial for us to understand as we start looking at loving people. So do not murder, but to love people. Colossians 3, 12 through 17 says this. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on, that means do, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive others. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Do you hear that? Put on love. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God gratitude in our hearts. And whatever you do, whatever you do, that's a lot of stuff. In word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything in word and deed in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so how are we doing there? Is our everything's reflecting the Jesus that we follow? And what we see is love is a motivation that impacts your determinations and actions. And so we live in a society that says love is whatever you want it to be and when you want it to be. And we got to be careful how culturally we're influenced. The culture says you can fall into love, which is scary, so watch your step, right? If you're not trying to find love, better watch where you're walking. It says you can lose love. The righteous brothers rightly said you've lost that love and feeling, right? And it's gone, gone, gone. That's right, you can fill it in. I know, I know my crowd. But more accurately, Boston says it's more than a feeling, it's true. It's a choice. 
Love is a choice. How do I know that? Because what Jesus says, look at verse 43, still in Matthew 5, verse 43. Again, he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. This is funny because in Luke 10, the lawyer comes up to, to Jesus and he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? What do you see? Or how do you read it? And this lawyer answers, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Which Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But it's interesting, because then the lawyer says, wanting to justify himself, he asks, and who's my neighbor? And is that what we do? Like, okay, who am I really supposed to love? And Jesus goes on to clarify, you can read for yourself in Luke 10, basically, Everyone is your neighbor, even the people that you don't like the most. Because who's my neighbor? Who, who do I have to love and who maybe not so much and who can I ignore? And Jesus doesn't give that leeway. I mean, we justify it because people are hard to love, especially people that don't love you. It's hard to love them back. People are hard to love when you don't like them, right? Then verse 44 he goes on and says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this is how I know that love is a choice. Because when you, loving your enemies doesn't give that fluttery, loving feeling inside you, right? Like no one's excited to love the people that are hating you or actively against you and doing everything to destroy your life. You don't want to love those people. We in our own passions and desires want revenge and vengeance. Justice on our own terms. I think it's why we love certain movies and certain things so much. I go back to, you know, as a maybe, anyway, Taken, right? I don't know if I recommend watching it, but I've seen it. Taken. And Liam Neeson, like the man's man. And there's this scene where his daughter's been traveling abroad, been taken, and he's on the phone with the kidnapper. He has this conversation, and this conversation's stirring for a lot of people. He says, Liam says, I don't know who you are right? You remember this. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money, but what I do have is a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. And the man inside me like, yeah, get him. He says, if you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I'll not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you, and in Liam Neeson's voice, I will kill you. And when we see that, we're like, yes, because this guy deserves to die, right? Take my daughter, I will kill someone. But is that what God's word says? Like, think about how emotionally we're stimulating our own desires for vengeance and revenge and justice on our own terms. So how we treat people, we're more influenced by the culture than maybe we may think, and less by God's word. I mean, think about this. If we're honest, I think we can be honest here, church. If we're honest, aren't you thankful that God doesn't treat you like you treat others? Listen, you're all some good folks. I, I know. I know you when I said it. You guys are great. But not all the time. Are you thankful that God doesn't treat you like you treat others? Now, what we see is God's love is always demonstrated through action. 
Romans 5.8 says, God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, you know what, first clean up your act, get your stuff together, stop doing this, that, and other, and then I may think about sacrificing myself for you. He didn't do that. He did it long before the evilness that you would do. You know, great people, we do stupid things. Romans 5.10 says, for if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more have we been reconciled? Will we be reconciled? Will we be saved by his life? And so two things that we need to see. You cannot out God's grace. It almost sounds heretical, right? You cannot out God's grace. And two, you cannot lose God's love. You can't. He's already given it. He's not going to take it back. This is, we have to see this. Because on based on who God is and what he's done, then Jesus gives his followers, he says, a new command. So with this in mind, Jesus gives his followers a new command in John 13, 34 and 35. He says, love one another. Sounds easy enough. But then he says, just as I have loved you. What do you do for you and for me and for all people? Went to the cross taken our place, carried our sin and our shame and nailed it to the cross. And so that whoever would believe in him that he paid the price for your sin will be saved. That's why you were enemies, helpless, ungodly, sinners, Romans 5. But then it says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The distinguishing mark of a Christian is their sacrificial love for another. Sacrificial love for another. Because all people are priceless to God. Those created at conception, those who are known for their deception, and those who have experienced nothing but rejection. Everyone, all people are priceless to God. So what do we do with all this? It'd be great for us to be stirred with emotions and affections for God. Praise God, yes. But what do we do what we have to see is love is not passive, it's always active. Always active. Proverbs 21 verse 3 says, Doing what is righteous and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. More simply, Martin Luther King Jr. would say, The time is always right to do what is right. So I just want to look at three different phases real quick. Three God-ordained institutions to see how we apply what we've seen in God's Word today. God-ordained institutions, what do I mean? Number one, family. God created the family. His idea, His design. We see that in Genesis 2.24. This is why man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. They become one flesh. Marriage. Family unit. But within that family, how do we treat one another? Your spouse is creating God's image purposely, on purpose. All the quirks, weirdness, stresses, anxiety, all those things. Ephesians 5 says, wives, you're to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And I know, I know, I have a wife, I know that's a hard word to hear. I didn't make it up. Don't shoot the messenger. Submit 
And as hard as that sounds, that means are you the control freak in that area? Do you have to have control? Do you have to be the commander? And you have to have your way or the highway type of mentality? That ain't good. That ain't good. But as hard as that is, husbands, your calling is harder. Because just when you think you're off the hook, verse 25 in Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. How's that going? Are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church with your words and with your deeds? Or does it look like you love yourself a little bit more? Because I'm telling you, Rachel and I have had this conversation. We're both humans, in case you didn't know that. So we struggle with this too. But she has made the mention it's a lot more easier, that may not be great grammar, to submit to you when you're following Christ well. When you're loving me as Christ loved the church, it's a whole lot easier to fight my flesh and submit to your leadership. And submission doesn't mean I have to do everything my husband says. That's absolutely not true. It isn't us and a we, but I'm responsible for God how I lead my family, starting with my wife. Parents, especially dads, Ephesians 6, 4 says, don't stir up anger in your children. It's hard for me not to do that because I feel it's one of my rights as a dad is to poke at them a little bit. But it says, bring them up in training and instruction in the Lord. That is your main job as a parent. To teach and grow your kids and how amazing God is and teach his instructions, his wisdom, knowledge, to know and to love him. And children are to obey their parents, Ephesians 6, 1 and 2, because that's right. It says, honor your father and mother, which is the first command with a promise. And so you see, as a family unit, as God structured it, if we operated in these ways, it would change our culture, our neighborhood, our societies, our country, dare I say, to the ends of the earth. If we obeyed actually what God said, like he knew what he was doing when he originated the family unit. So we have the family. Number two, the church. This is individually and organizationally. It's me and we. James 1, it says a lot of things to the church, but James 1, verse 27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep one unstained from the world. And you see that refrain over and over in Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, orphans and widows, also known as the most vulnerable. As Christians, we're not to fight against people, but fight for people. People in the womb and outside the womb. That's why we are looking to partner better. We have partnered in some ways with various ministries and agencies in our area. And this is important because us as a church and you individually have these opportunities to partner in ways that matter. We have the Richmond Pregnancy Resource Center who's doing great work and we've looked for ways to partner with them when we still do, but they're looking for individuals also. So what are we doing let me give you this. We have been partnering, we'll continue to, to enhance and hone our partnership with the Henrico foster care system. Right now in Virginia, there are over 5,000 kids in the foster care system, about 50% of which are teenagers. Over 1,500 kids in the foster care, that 5,000, have the goal of adoption. And more than 600 children are currently waiting to be adopted. And on top of that, out of all the states, Virginia ranks 50th in permanency, which means more kids 
exit the foster care system at the age of 18 without a family than any other state. It's the church's job to care for the most vulnerable. The fixed ministry is another ministry that we're looking to partner with. The fixed ministry is a great ministry to help those who are just getting their teeth kicked in by addiction. Because there's a huge need in our church and outside of our church for help. And so we're partnering with agencies like the Fix Ministry to care for people. But on top of all that, and as we prayerfully consider how you can be a part of seeing needs met in our community and beyond, the biggest need in Virginia over all this is lostness. That's where it all starts. It's lostness. And so what are we doing there? There's about estimated, and you know how statistics go, 7 million people without Jesus. How do you determine that? I have no idea. Let's say it's true. Let's say if we can impact just 1%, that's in Virginia, that would be 70,000 people. What do we have to do to reach 70,000 people? Let's just play a game. We would need... 280 new churches that would need to multiply at least once. Each church would have to average about 125 people. So while we get there, what are we doing? It's not just about us and our little worlds. It's about we and what are we doing to reach people, to impact lostness, which will impact families, will impact communities. And we've said this before, but I'll continue to say, God's plan A is for disciples to make disciples leading to churches planting churches that is God's plan a and as David Platt would say there is no plan b that's it so you want to see communities change start actually living for the sake of the gospel in your areas of influence and so we talked about the family we talked about the church and finally the government God ordained the government Romans 13 1 let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that are, exist are instituted by God. Why do I mention that? Because the care for the most vulnerable was never meant to be from the government. It's a command given to the church, Christians. So what do we do? We see people created in God's likeness and are suffering and are hurting. What are we doing about it? And how are we contributing to it? I'm praying just the Lord wrestles with us a little bit this morning. Stop being so passive and start being active, propelled, motivated by our love for God and love for others. And finally, as we wrap up in Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says this. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar First, and go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come offer your gift. And what that means for us is that as we're wrestling through people and relationships, and starts, God starts revealing some hurt that you have, maybe you've done or received. Deal with that right now. Maybe you need to repent for how you've treated certain people in your areas of relationships. Maybe you need to extend forgiveness to someone in the room. Maybe someone who's not in the room, you need to start forgiving them now, even though they didn't ask for it or want it. And maybe you need to call them later. 
But when we talk about your gifts at the altar, we're about to continue worshiping. And this is an area of worship. We worship and we continue worshiping. But what if right now God is revealing a blind spot, a hurt in your area, an unforgiveness area, an area you need forgiveness, or an area you need to repent? You need to deal with that. That's what this is telling us. Deal with that. And that's by God's grace showing you areas that need healing. Maybe you're doing or someone's done to you, but you need healing. That only comes from the feet of the cross, the feet of Jesus. And this is a promise of Scripture that we see throughout. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so right now, we're going to have an opportunity to respond to what God's doing. Maybe for the first time, you have seen there is a good God, a loving Father who's created you remarkably and wondrously made to know Him and be known by Him, but you haven't known Him. I want to encourage you to surrender by faith to what Jesus did for you at the cross so you can have new life, born again, made new. The old things have gone. Starting right now at your moment of faith, you can be created new in that relationship that you desire to create it have in the first place. And you do that by faith alone. Today is the day of salvation. Not what you know, but who you know. We know a lot of things about God. We've walked through church doors. We've done these things. But have you surrendered your life to Jesus? It says, whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe? Healing starts there. Hope starts there. Life starts there. And if you're hurting, and these, this time together has been triggering and emotional, there's healing in Jesus. I'm asking him just to do a work in us this morning. The Holy Spirit just to pour us and heal us, to work in us and through us. And finally, if there is a relationship issue that you have, first is with the Lord, resolve that. But secondly, if it's with someone else, spend time right now dealing with that. Maybe if someone in the room, you need to go and pray together. Maybe you owe an apology. Stop what you're doing here in a minute and go and pray and repent and apologize. Maybe this person's not in this room, but you have done something wrong. You need to repent right now. Because first and foremost, our sin's against the Lord, and then it's against others. But then after we leave here, you need to pursue resolving that. But maybe you've been hurt by someone, and there's no way you could contact them. Maybe you're not ready for that. Your healing still starts right now. I'm just asking God to heal wounds that only he can. There's nothing that we can say we can do. Only Jesus is the one that heals, and he's still in the healing business. So we're going to respond. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and we're going to sing one last worship song. But before they do, we're going to pray together. And during that time of prayer, I'm going to ask the Lord just to continue to show us and reveal to us and refresh us in the ways only he can. And I'm going to encourage you to respond to what God's doing right here in this moment, in this place. And then we're going to sing. And as we sing, maybe your response is you stand and sing because God is worthy and he's amazing and he's loving, gracious and merciful. Or maybe you need to still sit and pray. Maybe you need to fall on your knees in repentance right where you are. Maybe you need to grab someone around you and just pray. We'll have a prayer team over here. We'd love to pray with you, pray for you. You're not alone, nor were you meant to be in this Christian journey.
But don't leave this place without responding to what the Holy Spirit is prompting in your life. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll continue worshiping. And you worship in the way that the Lord is prompting you to. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for bringing us here this morning. Lord, I thank you for the reminder of how remarkable your creation is. Father, I pray you give hope and healing in only ways that you can by your spirit in this place this morning, Father. Heal the wounds. Heal the hopelessness. I pray you continue to just to strengthen and form families around yourself. Restore hurt relationships, brokenness. And I pray that as we look to you, reveal if there's any sin blind spots in our lives. Areas that we've been cutting with our words and our actions. Father, help us and bring us to a heart of humility to pursue restoring the relationships starting with you. Lord, lead us in a time of response. And then wash over us your peace and your presence and your comfort and your amazing love that you have for us, knowing that our past has to divine us. And today is a new day. Your mercies and your faithful love are new every morning. They're everlasting, Father, and you are good. So I pray you just wash refreshment and peace with your presence in the only way that you can. Father, bring healing and hope. We thank you, Father. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.